Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices, and we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today's discussion is part of our series on presidents of the United States. We're continuing with the little-remembered presidents from the Gilded Age, and we're talking today about Grover Cleveland. I must confess my knowledge of him before researching this podcast was pretty much limited to a few pieces of trivia. He's the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms as 22nd and 24th president. He's the only president to be married in the White House, and his daughter is the namesake of the Baby Ruth candy bar. He's also one of only two Democrats who were elected president between Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. Turns out he was actually quite consequential as a president. He was born in 1837 in New Jersey, the fifth of nine children. His father was a Presbyterian minister. 1850, the family moved to Clinton, New York, where his father worked for the American Home Missionary Society. Financial conditions caused Grover to leave school for a two-year mercantile apprenticeship in Fayetteville, New York. His father died of a gastric ulcer in 1853, and Grover again had to leave school to help support the family. His brother obtained him a job as assistant teacher at the New York Institute for the Blind, but he returned home and decided to move west to Buffalo, where his uncle gave him a clerical job. He took a clerkship at Millard Fillmore's old law firm, Rogers, Bowen, and Rogers, and began to read law. He was admitted to the bar in 1859. 1862, he started his own practice and was appointed assistant district attorney of Erie County. He paid $150 to have a Polish immigrant take his place in the army after he was conscripted in 1865. In 1865, he ran for district attorney as a Democrat, losing to his friend and roommate, Lyman K. Bass. In 1870, he ran for sheriff of Erie County and was elected. The fees he collected gave him an income of almost $40,000 per year. As sheriff, he personally hanged two men convicted of murder. At the end of his term, he returned to private practice with Lyman Bass and Wilson Bissell. During this period, he had a relationship with a widow, Maria Crofts Halpin, that resulted in an illegitimate child. She accused him of rape, he accused her of alcoholism and consorting with other men, and he had her institutionalized and her child taken away to be raised by some of his friends. He was elected mayor of Buffalo on an anti-corruption platform in 1881 and spent his term fighting graft, corruption, and the political, political machines of both parties. Having developed developed a reputation for honesty and courage in fighting graft, he was nominated for and elected governor of New York in 1882 by the largest margin of victory in a contested election in New York up to that time. He continued to fight needless spending, vetoing eight bills in his first two months. Despite being a Democrat, he fought Tammany Hall and most of its projects. The loss of the support of Tammany Hall was counterbalanced by attracting reform-minded Republicans, which included Theodore Roosevelt. At the 1884 Democratic Convention, Samuel Tilden was the favorite, but he withdrew to ill health, and Cleveland won on the second ballot, either despite or because of the enmity of Tammany Hall. The Republicans nominated James G. Blaine, whose name we've heard before in this podcast. 
The election centered on corruption, with the mugwump faction of the Republicans deserting Blaine for, uh, to vote for Cleveland. Blaine's corruption in favor of the railroads was pitted against Cleveland's affair with Maria Halpin in one of the dirtier campaigns we've had. Blaine's correspondence regarding some of the railroad uh, shenanigans was, un was uncovered, and some of the letters bore the notation, burn this letter, fairly incriminating. In contrast, Cleveland told his supporters to, above all, tell the truth, and he acknowledged having had the relationship and... Uh, having had the illegitimate child and paying child support. The Irish votes looked to be pivotal, and Blaine's mother was Irish Catholic. Unfortunately for him, when a Republican named Samuel Burchard made a speech, he denounced Democrats as the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. The implicit insult to Catholics helped keep them in the Democratic fold. Cleveland won the popular vote by about a half a percent, but in Electoral College, he won fairly handily, 219 to 182. Tom, I think we should discuss Cleveland and his leadership. Where do you want to start? So um, before we get there, can, uh, just uh, an observation on these uh, series of podcasts we've done on the presidents from the Gilded Age. It really seemed to me that uh, these series of presidents emphasized uh, even at this point in American history, how much the average person could could achieve. And uh, none of these uh, presidents came from great families. Uh, they were not large landowners, as we saw of the presidents in the pre-Civil War era, cer certainly at least up to 1840. And uh, these were men, uh, if, if not self-made men, uh, they had educations, they had read law, they were in professions, uh, and they went up a political ladder. Uh, sheriff, mayor governor, uh, uh, head of a customs house, um, a variety of positions. And it really struck me that this really was a land of opportunity. And uh, if you had superior talent, and clearly these men uh, were intelligent, uh, to get through universities or colleges at this time and then put that talent to, to use uh, in a profession, um, even if you did have to do backbreaking work like uh, uh, walking a mule up and down a canal occasionally uh, and uh, are lucky enough to have Horatio Alger on staff to help you uh, publicize that story. I just love that. A true Horatio Alger story <laughs> written by Horatio Alger. Um, that uh, this really was a, a land of opportunity and the common man really did have a chance. Uh, I still think that exists today in America in spite of a lot of evidence to the contrary, but I think, uh, you know, it's not that you're limited by your imagination. You're only limited by uh, your talent and capacity for hard work in the city we both have chosen to live in most of our lives, uh, I think is as great an example as anywhere that the opportunity is still in America. And But this... These men that we've talked about, and of course they all are men, uh, really came from very humble backgrounds, mm -hmm. and some from very poor families, uh, and yet they all succeeded to the highest office in the land uh, at a time when um, uh, all of the opportunities may not have been as great, and we haven't even you know, gotten to people in the West yet yeah. uh, for, for leadership <laughs> lessons. But it, it really struck me that uh, America was very different than other countries, even at this time, and uh, how, how each one of these men that we've talked about uh, move forward. And um, with uh, uh, Cleveland, uh, frankly, was not aware of his uh, 
you know, role as a sheriff. Uh, I didn't know that we'd had a president from Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I shuffled off to Buffalo, but I never didn't know we had a president from Buffalo. And his governorship of New York, uh, I think, was uh, pivotal, pivotal, pivotal uh, in uh, kind of preparing him for uh, this role as the president. Um, we're going to get to his second term and, and how it may have had uh, more failures than, than successes in his second term in a little bit. But in his first term, I think he did have some notable successes. He carried out the reforms that uh, we've talked about literally since Rutherford B. Hayes and the, uh, the spoil system uh, that um, they were able to at least cut back on, if not destroy, but also such good government initiatives as the creation of an interstate commerce commission. Uh, modernization of the Navy continued. Uh, cancellation of construction contracts that had resulted in inferior ships and inferior fortifications. And then one that I really was not aware of, which was that the land that had been given to the railroads um, uh, the deal was that they would be given land and that they had to build on this land, but they could sell the, the rights to other uh, other parties. Uh, they didn't build, so the lands were, uh, because they hadn't extended their lines according to the agreements. And so uh, lands were forfeited back to the federal government to the tune of over 81 million acres. Uh, I was not aware of, of his role in that. And um, so I think uh, in terms of reform, he certainly um, uh, engaged, continued to engage in reform. Um, he vetoed several bills. He used his veto power to veto bills that he thought were either unconstitutional or were essentially boondoggles, uh, even in the face of, of large public pressure for him to go the, another direction. Uh, one of those, I think, that, caught, that uh, required great courage was um, there was a bill uh for uh, veterans to receive a pension, um, whether or not they were wounded, in addition to the already existing pensions, and he vetoed that. Uh, but he also vetoed a bill that would provide money for seed, uh, actual food, uh, food stock seed, in the state of Texas after a drought had ruined several crops, um, because he didn't believe that that was what the government should be doing. And and I think. Uh, that was certainly a laissez-faire political approach that existed at this time uh, that came to grief, in his, particularly in his second term. Um, but he, uh, the point to me was he stayed true to who he was as a politician. Yeah. Well, he did, and it was often quite unpopular. The, um, the, the pensions, there's also the a tendency at the time for private pension bills to be uh, proposed by congressmen. When someone's uh, request for a pension had been denied by the pension board, their local congressman would simply pass a law that, or introduce a law that would give them the pension anyway. Right. And he would he proceeded to veto lots of those. So, so um, the um, one thing that really struck me is uh, I'm going to go back, see if I can find the quote. Um, uh, biographer Alan Nivens said of Cleveland, "The greatness lies in." the typical rather than the unusual qualities. He had no endowments that thousands of men do not have. He possessed honesty, courage, firmness, independence, and common sense, <clears throat> but um, he possessed them to a degree that other men do not. And I don't think that's a backhanded compliment. I think that's actually quite a high compliment yeah. uh, because uh, you don't have to be Einstein. and The world doesn't need... Uh, 
a bunch of Einstein sometimes. They need people who can actually uh, have courage, have honesty, have firmness, have independence and common sense, and utilize those in their leadership qualities. So um, Cleveland seemed to feel like the public office was a public trust, and coupled with these qualities, I think his instincts were uh, generally to do the uh, do the right thing. He uh, continued the trend that we observed earlier of a return to uh, power uh, centralized in the executive as opposed to the legislative branch. Um, but the question I really wanted to maybe visit was, uh, in spite of uh, my uh, great admiration for that quote I read, do you have to have the vision thing? Uh, is it enough to really be uh, very good, very competent, very courageous, very firm and independent and keep the status quo? Or do you have to have a vision as a leader? Uh, I think we have both talked about uh, the, the vision that we think leaders need to, need to have. But uh, can you just maintain that status quo? And, you know, certainly he came to grief in his second term around economics. But... Um, at that point in time, uh, the economic uh, science had not been developed as well as it is now. I don't think people understood market forces quite the way they do now, and even they did maybe 10 or 20 years later. Uh, and uh, much like the, you know, the Irish famine, uh, the English uh, government really did not know what to do and had no answer for it. And I don't think that Cleveland had an answer for the Panic of, ni- of 1893. Well, I think it was impossible for him to conceive of an answer to it within the limits of his philosophy, whether it was a vision or not. But his small government philosophy was was fairly extreme. Um, The the seed bill is a great example. Um, There are some quotes by him that it's the responsibility of the citizens to support their government. It is not the responsibility of the government to support its citizens. once the coffers of the general government are open to the public, there will be no shutting them again. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, I think he did have a vision of, of a kind, but it was a particularly narrow and uh, constrained one. Uh, there was a couple of other things in his second term that I think really damaged his reputation. Uh, the first was uh, really, uh, well, they were both around labor. And we mentioned, or I mentioned the economic crisis, the Panic of 1893. Uh, that led to a group of working men uh, led by James Coxey to march to Washington. They were known as Coxey's Army. By the time they reached Washington, uh, there were relatively uh, only 100 or few left. They were arrested uh, on the White House grounds, largely without incident. Um, even though uh, it really didn't lead to any uh, uh, armed clashes, it certainly showed a a dissatisfaction that uh, many Westerners had with Eastern monetary policies. And this was really um, brought to the fore with the Pullman strike of 1894. Uh, Lots has been written about the Pullman strike. Eugene Debs uh, was the leader of the uh, American Railway Union struck uh, the Pullman Company over low wages, uh, 12-hour days, a large number of sympathy strikes. Because the railroads carried the mail and because several of the affected lines were in federal receivership, Cleveland did believe a federal solution was appropriate. He got an injunction when the strikers refused to obey it. He sent federal troops uh, into Chicago and other rail centers. And this really marked a huge turning point in uh, labor unrest. But it really destroyed... Uh, I think the last vestiges of Cleveland's relationship with uh, that part of his party, 
that was hankering for uh, some sort of labor reform, and uh, the Democrats um, really did not recover from that. I don't know if... Uh, I've just never been clear myself on, on what Cleveland thought uh, about all of this. I've studied this more from the Debs and the railroad union side, and that uh, I don't know if Cleveland was being manipulated by the railroads or others advocating for their position, but it seemed to me uh, that not only did this destroy the union, but it destroyed the uh, Democrats' relationship with uh, uh, those American workers. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, an interesting decision on his part. The um, Pullman had always presented himself as a paternal figure with the company town, with you know, good housing, and and he just felt unappreciated by his workers. <laughs> um, but yeah, the involvement of the federal government in that, when it was not going to get involved in anything else, was I think a, a fairly large black mark on his record. The um, you know, the panic of eighteen ninety three really resulted in the uh, takeover of the Democratic Party by uh, agrarian and free silver people in the West, and uh, the nomination of Bryan in eighteen ninety six, and, and fundamentally changed American politics. I think. Um, you know, I really, uh, I really like the way you phrase that because many people point to Bryant and his uh, um, cross of cross of silver speech. But uh, it was set up as exactly as you said because of uh, Cleveland's uh, position that he took during the Pullman strike, and the Republicans wiped out the uh, Democrats uh, literally across the country in the midterm elections, and it allowed uh, the free, the agrarian wing of the party, the populist wing of the party, the free silver wing of the party, all to take over, leading to uh, Bryant's nomination. Yeah. Um, let's see, what's one other one I think? Oh, the Hawaii issue. Oh. I thought that was kind of an interesting little interlude. Uh, it certainly was. The, uh, what had happened was the queen, Lilio Kalani, had been uh, overthrown by Sanford Dole, whose name you might recognize. And the question was whether to recognize the new government or not. And I think Cleveland... I guess showed his pragmatism here. He initially resisted recognition of the uh, of the Dole government as having been. Uh, well, he sent a commission out that that uh, uncovered the uh, the reasons behind the overthrow. Um, but then he eventually acquiesced in uh, in the takeover. I guess what I saw was him defusing the affair. And by, uh, you know, that uh, we laughed about the congressional method of uh, creating a committee. Well, he created a commission yeah. and to study the situation. And he did that. And he did a seat, I think, a little bit later. Nevertheless, it did seem to uh, diffuse the situation a little bit, at least to on the United States side of things. And uh, we also saw, uh, I think, a presaging of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's expansion or at least uh, enhanced uh, vision of the Monroe Doctrine mm -hmm. in uh, the Western Hemisphere. So uh, that was, uh, I thought, interesting. I hadn't fully appreciated that Cleveland had invoked the Monroe Doctrine uh, uh, as well uh, there. And so, um, you know, in the second term, certainly a mixed bag, but uh, when you have that philosophy and you adhere to that in the face of uh, just a grave economic catastrophe, and I think it was the worst 
uh, economic disaster before the Great Depression and maybe number two in the U.S. to date, um, they were just ill-equipped, or not even ill-equipped, perhaps not even equipped at all, to uh, develop a, a robust interventionist response. One, politically or philosophically, they couldn't see that that was their role. And two, the various factors, you know, internationalism, trade, the tariff, immigration, all of those factors were so intertwined that uh, it would have taken a very, very astute and creative person to put together a package of solutions to respond. And I think at this point we might want to talk about his health issues. Excellent. Since it was at that time. Yes. Um, so the um, health issue pops up again with President Cleveland. And President Cleveland had, uh, it was described as a cyst or a tumor in his mouth that um, on his hard palate, the tumor uh, had to be removed. And in removing the tumor, I think large portions of his upper left jaw and hard palate were removed. Um, a cover story was created for this, but the physical uh, effects were uh, apparent to those so that he actually, a prosthesis was created for him uh, that corrected uh, his speech and restored his appearance. Um, so you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's unclear even to this day whether or not this tumor was cancerous or not, whether it's malignant um, or it was something else, and, and we may never know the answer to that. Nevertheless, uh, the surgery did occur, and um, although he was uh, sedated with nox, nitrous oxide and ether, I shudder to think what his post-op was like. Uh, and this was at the height of the panic. Yes. So um, given his philosophical objections to the federal government taking any major role, I'm not sure it really affected it. But certainly the secrecy involved uh, is troublesome. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to this issue, obviously, in Woodrow Wilson's <laughs> administration. But, uh, but anyway, I thought that was, was one of those issues. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox. We hope you enjoyed it and come back again. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.